I move like a like a a Clydesdale that's been stung by a bee that's like like kind of angry and, and like I'm, but I'm going through heavy heavy mud with my big stompy feet. I'm James Zug, and this is Outside the Glass. Crown has just published Ted Friend's second memoir, In the Early Times, A Life Reframed. In it, he examines his own life and the life of his father, Dory Friend. Dory, who played squash at St. Paul's and then under, under Clarence Chafee at Williams, was the president at Swarthmore College and, as we hear, the coach of the Garnet women's squash team. It is perhaps the only time in the history of U.S. education that a college president was simultaneously coaching a varsity team. Tad, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker, beautifully examines the complicated intersection of parenting and the game of squash. Here, he also talks about his career in the game, from first learning it in Buffalo to playing on the freshman team at Harvard. His coach that year was Eric Cutler, who last made an appearance on Outside the Glass in episode 54, when Anil Nair spoke about the Harvard admissions officer who accepted him in 1965, but deliberately didn't tell the coach, Jack Barnaby. The courts they used that freshman year were in Adams House. They were the original 11 squash courts at Harvard that were built in 1919. Tad also talks about what he did during the pandemic, becoming a world-class ghoster on a soccer field, his love of watching players like Amir Shabana, and working with mentors like Peter Nichol and Richard Chen, and why he videotapes almost all of his matches. But in the end, the book and our conversation here focus on what it's like to get older and how we are all, as Tad says, trying to disimprove at a slower rate. Well, I guess the uh, it's, you know, famously in book publishing, it's the calm before the calm. Um, so <laughs> you get all... Uh, all geared up and then uh, you wait for the phone to ring. Um, so pretty much talking to you is going to be the high point of, of the whole experience. I think I should hope so. so. Yeah. I'd expect that. Been looking forward to this for years. <laughs> um, well, uh, w- one of the, one of the core parts of the book is about uh, your relationship to squash and your dad's relationship to squash. And, and, um, and that, sort of through line of, of the game and uh, uh, in each other. Um, so I thought we'd talk a little bit about, about his story with squash. Um, where did he first start playing? You mentioned that he played uh, uh, on the varsity of Williams. Did he grow up playing or how did, how did that all? I think he started playing at, at St. Paul's uh, in prep school, playing hardball, obviously. Um, so that would have been in, in the late forties um, and then kept playing at Williams and he was never really a tennis player. I mean, he was originally a, a squash player. Um, his tennis game when he played was extremely squashy. Um, and uh, then we, yeah, then he moved after uh, college and, and getting married and going to graduate school. He, played a lot in Buffalo where we lived when I was young um, at the tennis and squash club. And that's where he taught me the game. Um, And so that was sort of my first impression was that that was the home of squash was, you know, the tennis and squash club. So. (laughs) Did he mention Clarence Chafee and I mean, did he have any mentors or. Yes, he did. He did. And, uh, um, and Clarence's daughter, Franny was a 
friend of both my dad and my mom's and then has become a friend of mine. So I would hear about Clarence, even though several generations removed from him, but I, he was sort of a, a, a figure in my mind, a kind of like, um, sort of slightly Mr. Chipsy, uh, slightly, uh, Stover goes to Yale kind of paragon of, of old school squash virtue. I have never met him. I have no idea if he those things, but, right. but he talked about him and I think, uh, um, was supposed to have learned the, the comportment of the game, which I don't think my dad quite took in fully because he was always, he was very competitive. Let's put it that way. He wanted to win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the book, you have this great description of, um, of uh, the first, the first times you sort of went out on, under the court at, at the tennis and squash club in Buffalo. Um, do you, do you have the book with you? I can go get it. Um, it's right yeah. in the next room. Well, I, 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 was, I, I thought I would read this, but you know. Okay, you read it. You read it. It'll sound better probably from you. I, I'm sure that's not true. But um, you say, uh, this is how the chapter begins. When I was a boy in Buffalo, Day taught me squash. Day is how you, you called your dad, uh, Dory friend. We entered the frosty court by a low hatchway and waved our wooden rackets in stately arcs, ceremonious as polar explorers chiseling out an ice cave. He tapped the ball to me for a bit and then uncoil and smash a hard forehand, the ball skimming low along the sidewall like a mouse racing for its hole. His game was about power. That was a great paragraph. Um, well, it sounds a lot better as I thought coming from you, Jim. I'm going to have you read all my stuff from now on. You're like, you're like stately and you're like emphasizing the words and really can, hitting it like, like a squash ball. I can do, uh, do the audio book. Um, so uh, I, I sort of had a similar experience uh, with my first uh, real times playing um, uh, in, in Pittsburgh uh, on a very cold, uh, dusty uh, court. Mm -hmm. And um, so I sort of relate to that. Did you, um, uh, as you were growing up, would you play with your dad a lot? And, and was that something, uh, even after you moved to, uh, to Philadelphia, were you, were you playing with him or, or, or was that, a, was it separate? Like his squash life was sort of separate from yours. I think my squash life was predicated on his until I probably went to college pretty much, or almost went to college where the only times I really played until maybe I was a junior, senior in high school, cause we didn't have a team in high school. Yeah. Um, was with him a lot of the time. And, and he, um, at Swath he was at Swarthmore college and he was the president of the college, but he also coached the women's team. Um, and he played, you know, with some of the players on the male, the men's team. And, um, I would often sort of tag along and wait around for him to be done. And then we'd play afterward. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, my sense of the game kind of came from him and my, uh, sense of what you were supposed to do on the court. It was, it was pretty rudimentary. He wasn't really trying to raise me as a, as a squash phenom. And, and there was obviously none of the, like, you know, junior circuit. Yep. Junior circuit stuff. It was just, you know, there may have been a junior circuit, but it was far from, from my life. So I, I was actually more of a tennis player when I was a kid and didn't really take up squash seriously until after college. Um, yeah. yeah. And that did was the you, did point. Did you play on the on the court set at um, at Swarthmore? Was that the? Yeah, I played on that sort of old uh, hardball courts that were felt uh, like about negative 
22 degrees in the winter because it was not an insulated building. It was like sort of a shed that they stuck um, next to a road and sort of where the wind gods meet on the map. It had that feeling. It was like it was, it felt like very inimical to human life in like February. And you kind of went in there and then decided to leave before you actually froze to death and they found your body the next morning. <laughs> so that and, was my and, experience. Uh, Shipley, Shipley uh, back then didn't have a team. Um, it's it, a, it didn't have a, it had a girls team that was very good. Um, yeah. Kathy Castle was the, the yep. big star and became a leading player. Um, but it did not have a boys team because of the, because right. it had just gone co-ed about four or five years before. And so we were, we had a pretty small nucleus of boys. We, we could feel the basketball, terrible basketball team, which I was on. And that's how terrible it was. Um, but we could not also feel the squash team at the same time because right. they would have had to, you know, call timeout and make everyone run over to the squash courts to play there. So, um, so yeah, we, we had a good tennis team, but uh, no squash team. Um, it's pretty unusual for the college president to be coaching uh, a sports team. Um, did he, was that something he just did one or two seasons or was this a, sort of a passion of his uh well, squash was definitely a passion of his. It was his main form of exercise and his main outlet for competition, sort of, except for his lifelong one in all endeavors, but it was sort of the way that he could kind of get that, you know, exercise, fun, competition thing worked out when he was had a pretty full-time job. Um, and Swarthmore College, and it, particularly in those days, has a little bit of a you know, you're not doing anything. Why don't you go coach the women's? It was like a little bit of, you know, that kind of thing, like, uh, you know, idle hands of the devil's workshop quality to it, where it was like, instead of actually getting a coach who knew what she or he was doing, um, it was like, well, Dory plays squash, you know, let's, you know. So uh, it was all, you know, division three at its most division three-est kind of thing, where actually the the men's tennis team was very good and the men's soccer team got to the finals of the division three when he, when my dad was there and was good. And, uh, some other things were a little bit more of a title nine afterthought, you know? Amazing. Um, so to, to finish about his squash journey, uh, it seemed, it seemed like in the, in, in his fifties and sixties, he got sort of, I don't know, more focused on, on national tournaments and playing more. Is that sort of fair that, as he got older, he played more. Yeah, once he, I think once he stepped down from Swarthmore and took a slightly less time-consuming job, he put on a lot of weight at Swarthmore, and he it was a hard job, and he was sort of, I think he felt physically and mentally and emotionally drained by it. And then he, once he came out of that, took a year, you know, sort of sabbatical, and and took another job that wasn't quite as all-consuming. He decided, like, I'm going to get back into squash and start playing more again. And he was at that point 51 or two. Uh, my dad, so he, yes, yeah, so he started playing hardball tournaments and he actually kept it like a journal, a squash journal of like self improvement where he took a lot of lessons and ran on the track and did push ups and sit ups and, um, you know, tried to get better and yeah. wanted to achieve and wanted to achieve a top 10 ranking in the 50s, uh, which I don't think he quite did. Um, but then, you know, the great thing about squash is that you're renewed every five years and in the veterans tournaments and become a rookie and young again. 
And I think he got to the, and you would actually know better than me, but I think he got to the finals of the hardball 75s or 70s right. uh, and had some championship balls. He said, the way he told the story, it was one championship ball that he tinned when he had an easy put it away. But actually then in, I found out later in, in his journals after he died that he'd had six championship balls and which seared him, I think, as it would anyone. It was sort of like a Jean Vandeveld-like collapse that, you know, he couldn't quite believe because he, you know, the idea of being a national champion had real appeal to him. And um, I think he saw, him, you know, saw, ideally saw himself as, as sort of at the, the top level and then felt like he flubbed it. So was, that, about that for was that in hardball or softball that that match hardball i think yeah because he was pretty much a hardball player he, yeah. he played some, some softball but and he played some softball you know later in his life he kept playing until 2016 when he was 84 85 um in a group called the older guys at the berlin run by dominic hughes yeah. um yeah. and he was the oldest guy uh, of the older guys and and I saw him play, uh, like still, he played in the Hyder tournament in New York in 2007. He came up to New York um, and played in what would have been, I guess, his, in the 75s or 70s, whatever division they had. Uh, yeah. And he and whoever he was playing, <laughs> it was sort of like they were, like they had a tether between them at the tee that would attach them to each other. And then they were just jockeying around the tee and glaring at each other. And, and I was sort of thinking, you know, the ball's over there, actually, like in the corner where you hit it. And they were, but they were just like, they're both getting really chesty with each other. And it was like, neither one of them was moving. Neither of them could move very much. And it was sort of hilarious and also sort of sad, of course, because all, you know, mobility diminishes for all of us over time. So, yeah, he kept going until 84, 85. And then finally, the older guys began to worry that he was just going to be a danger to himself or if he toppled on them a danger to them and then and, and suggested that he retire which was a hard conversation that for me i somehow got nominated to be the one who had to tell him like they think you know think it's time um yeah yeah so and he, he was playing softball at that moment right because he was yeah and i think it it based on having sort of seen him it, it was like it was really just like a you know people trying to hit the ball right to him. And, and, yeah. and he still had a nice forehand. Like he could still kind of, it was a nice flowing, long, hard ball swing that, you know, started with the racket way up in the air and kind of got his body into it nicely. The backhand was always a little rickety, but his forehand was beautiful. He hit it, had a nice hard forehand and uh, he could still do that. Um, yeah. Maybe the knee bend wasn't quite as pronounced, but everything else looked good. And uh, it was just the mobility, his mobility had, you know, diminished yeah that i mean it happens to all of us and uh, uh you 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 write so beautifully about sort of you know the the uh the onset of of aging and injuries and and um um and 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 having that conversation it's you know it's a conversation children have with their parents about you know you need to stop driving um and and something like that and and to have that conversation about uh stopping something that he loved so much for for so long um is really hard yeah and we had to have the driving conversation too and various other conversations including like don't answer the phone because <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> every time he answered the phone it was 
someone on the dark web calling to ask for his credit card number, which he would cheerfully volunteer. So there's a bunch of conversations that you have, uh, and I'm sure they're all in my future as well as the recipient. You know, they're probably about two minutes away, in fact. But um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's a. Uh, I think that we we played a fair amount when together when I was in my twenties and he was in his fifties, mm-hmm. um, and we sort of we, the uh, the kind of arcs of our ability met you know for a few years where we were both pretty we were pretty even yeah i was i was kind of getting i wasn't very good at all i was getting better slowly and and he was staying about the same right um and yeah that's what struck me was that the first time i remember beating him he wasn't too happy about it he was you know like i think i'm looking forward to the day when my son could beat me in both tennis and squash which is he's now almost 16 and it's not far off um and he'll probably beat me in tennis first but uh like that'll be great it's like you know what is what a sign of like you're on your way and you know now it's you're at the center of the stage and uh, i don't think that was i mean i'm I'm not trying to make myself sound like a paragon of comparison because i have plenty of problems and but i do feel like i will try to be a little more appreciative of appreciative of the fact that it's like Oh, you've reached a, a life, you know, thing where you're beating your dad at something your dad actually cares about, you know. So, uh, but I think I felt like I was kind of like shoving him into the wings somehow. Yeah, it's a real moment, and um, you know, I had that with my dad, and and uh, how did your dad respond? Well, I, you know, unfortunately, it happened in like the hardball softball switch because we started playing softball, and you know, I was better than him uh from the get-go partly because i had played a lot and his style was a very hardball style um comparatively and i i do remember coming back in college um thinking i'm all hot stuff you know and 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 him being better than me and um and that was hard and and it's been fun with with our son you know he just beat me in ping pong for the first time recently and um you know that was great uh that he's you know reached my my mediocre level um yeah and is about to surpass it but it it is a it is a um for us who grew up playing with our fathers with our parents it is a real moment sort of subconsciously or not about you know being being better yeah yeah my son kicked my butt at ping pong when he was about 10 he was, yeah. So it's already, you know, it's already happening. <laughs> it's already happening. It's all happening. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. And I, just before we move on from your dad, it, 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 to, to have that national championship on your racket and, and the way he remembered it either publicly or, you know, with you at about one point and actually with six points and, um, just that whole, um, you know, striving towards a goal, maybe too ferociously and kind of, I don't know. It's interesting that that, that uh, I, I have in front of me the um, his ranking. Uh, the New Yorker uh, uh, fact checker asked me to dig up his his ranking. So I I I, I, um, I don't know if you saw this, but so in 1984, 1983, he was ranked 50th in the 50s. Uh, in 84, he was 29. In 85, he was 32. And in 86, he was 40. And then in 87, he moved up to the 55s, and he was 37 in the country. That was one behind Richie Ashburn, 
So that's pretty good, mm. pretty good company. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1988, he was 15th. Um, and that, um, so that, uh, that was, I think his best, um, national ranking, uh, in the, in that era in the eighties. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, like, I think that was, you know, still hardball and there were still a lot of players who were playing hardball and it was, it, um, yeah, it felt like, you know, I think he was pleased to get, get to 15 and felt like that was pretty, pretty good work for him. Cause he, I think he felt like he, he'd never played as much as he wanted to and never quite felt like he, his strokes were natural in mm. some way that he, he was kind of, I think he felt that way about a lot of things in his life that he kind of had to get a sort of Rousselian wolf child feeling, even though he'd grown, he obviously went to St. Paul's Williams and Yale. It's like, he wasn't actually um, yeah. falling off a turnip, turnip truck, but he had a little bit of a feeling like he had to learn it himself because his dad hadn't shown him anything about anything. His dad was a drunk uh, and a very nice genial ne'er-do-well. Um, and his mom was busy with other things. And uh, so he kind of felt like he had to acquire the tools for living himself. Um, and I think he felt that way about a squash game that was kind of self-fashioned and rather than, um, you know, the product of hitting 10,000 balls before the age of 10 or even the age of 20. So, uh, I think he, he was pleased that he, you know, started to make some headway later in life. And, um, then he was, you know, chagrined at least that he couldn't quite become the national champion, you know, when there was that, yeah, one year where he felt like his hard serve and he was just fresh into this new category and not quite there mm. and it was something he, I think he I think it kind of gnawed at him a, a bit um and he tried to be philosophical about it but it's hard when you know you know you could have done it and that it was a mental thing like when you lose that many match balls that's yeah that's mental yeah so for sure um all right. So for you, when you were at Harvard, did you play much, uh, or or did you ever watch squash? Did you go watch Kent and Jernigan? You know, yeah, I watched the yeah beautiful games of like Kent and Jernigan and David Boyum. Um, I played on the freshman team, which was really a terrible team that was we were playing on like <laughs> we were playing a, a, like on courts that weren't even regulation size for hardball. They were like they were used as like you know like prisons or something back in the day i don't even <laughs> cells was this they were in, like all in hemingway no at at, at adam's house like one oh, of the, oh, one, no. one, of, one of the you know they were like these weird underground they're all all different sizes um you know some with rectilinear walls and some with not like you know it's actually like this crazy patchwork of like all sort of weirdly sized courts that we played on um and then we would go training on that and then we go play like the Andover or Exeter team and get our butts kicked. We were bad. We were bad. Uh so I played on that team and who it was, was your was like, coach? Uh Eric Cutler was our Oh coach. really? He was still amazing. He was, he was still there. Yes. I know. It was like, yeah. He uh he was still there and what was he like thing, as a as a coach? He was uh he was fun. He was kind of like you know like uh there wasn't a lot of coaching per se, but he was, you know, he was sort of convivial um, and much better dressed than we were. Uh, and uh, I don't know, like there was, I just remember, you know, we go, we take the van for a couple of hours and go to some prep school and 
these little snots would beat us up and then we go back. And then that was sort of like my squash experience at Harvard. And then that seemed like that was enough of that um, after freshman year and I got into some other things, but uh, I did watch, you know, the beautiful players and uh, on the team. And then I remember admiring uh, Chip Roby. He was the captain of, of Harvard's team uh, playing against Princeton in a big match and, and uh, you know, playing a really nice game and, and very supportingly when the other guy asked for a let on a ball that had skidded off a drop of sweat, um, which seems pretty clearly not a let by anyone's standards at any time. Chip, very without a word, was just like granted him the let and moved on and and then still managed to win the match, I think 15-14 in the fifth. And it was like, it was he asked for a let like on match balls in my recollection or very near to it. And you're like, no, that's not a let. And it was like a very tight match and it was Chip just, you know, super sporting. And I feel like, uh, not to pat myself on the back, but I was like, I remember thinking like, wow, that's such a, he's such a great guy and a nice player. And now Chip and I play all the time and, you know, we're pretty even. And I feel like there's a sign that I have, like my game has gotten better or else Chip has totally fallen off the earth is that we're like, can play and enjoy each other's company. And um, get, but at that time he seemed like on a distant planet of squash that was far away, so. Interesting. And so you didn't play, you didn't try out for the team or, you know, Dave Fish didn't rope you in or. You I think Dave Fish tried to rope me out, if anything. And like, he was like, good Lord, you'll infect my team with your strokes. Your left-handed yeah. back. There was a picture, yeah, there was a picture of Hemingway saying, do not admit this student into Hemingway because he may. Uh, I had very Tennessee horrible strokes. Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I guess the reason that I ended up on the freshman team is that, you know, whoever it was, Dave took one look at me and was like, you should be in the basement of Adam's house playing you know, with <laughs> the other wretches. And, and, uh, yep. that's what yep. they sent me. So, um, yeah, so I did not, yeah. Uh, play really at all then until moving to New York after, you know, after college. And then I, uh, started to take lessons and play and so how, how did that first happen that you sort of fell back into the game what what triggered that or or how did it happen i think moving to new york and realizing i can't it's hard to play tennis there weren't courts that i could find accessible i played a lot of soccer in central park uh, but i kept rolling my ankle because it was central park of the 80s which was essentially you know a minefield um and so squash seemed a little bit like less likely to hobble me for life. Um, so I started playing and, and it was still hardball. Um, and I was, you know, a C player, but I liked it and kind of gradually slowly got better. And then I think I, I think, you know, the transition to hard to softball was difficult just because for any hardball player, just because all your shots, like the reverse corner are totally absurd in softball, but I actually sort of came to like the chess-like aspect of it. And whereas hardball always seems a little bit like, you know, a car accident. Sometimes you're just like, ah, you're thrown clear and you're like, who won that point? And softball, you can actually have a little bit more time to sort of think about what you're supposed to be doing. And I like the, I like the, the challenge of trying to figure out the other person's game and how to attack it. Even if I did so ineffectually, at least I had an idea of what I was supposed to be doing. And whereas in hardball, you could, if you're playing someone really good, they could just like literally blow you off the court with power. And, and then you're just, there was like, you didn't have any, there was no way to beat power in hardball. And there are ways to beat power in softball. 
and I don't have any power. So I like softball. <laughs> and were you always at the Harvard Club or did you start off somewhere else? I played at the Harvard Club. Um, yeah. And now I find myself like in my late 50s, uh, a member of three places. I play in Brooklyn, too, at the Eastern Athletic Club, which is about to become open squash, I guess, next year. Right. Um, and then I play out in Southampton, too, now, um, which is my little plug for Southampton is like they have four great courts and it's only $500 a year. Yeah. At, and, at, uh, at, at, it's at that Y. Yeah. That's why. Yes. Yeah. It's great. It's in the middle of nowhere. I didn't even know it existed. And I started playing out there with a friend of mine and it's like the world's best deal and nice courts. And yeah. So, yeah. I and uh, neither you nor your dad really has gotten into doubles. No, I feel like that's a, that feels like a, a missed opportunity because I feel like I love playing doubles in tennis and I, and I, like the less running and actual work I have to do, the happier I am. So I I love the idea of uh, doubles, which everyone assures me is not quite as strenuous as uh, softball singles. Um, and, and being a lefty, I think um, it could that could actually, yeah, you know, the left wall could work. Uh, but I did I I played doubles like three times in my life, and the last time I played was like two years ago, and I realized like I was having even trouble just figuring out the rotation. Like I didn't need to like be steeped in it more. Um, uh, Bill Allman, who's a friend of mine, who's a very good doubles player, keeps threatening to like teach me. And I'm like, yes, go ahead. But I think he's just trying to like make me feel better and doesn't really want me to learn. Uh, <laughs> but I would like to. I'm putting out a, a kind of uh, pathetic plea for anyone who wants to teach me doubles. I'm, I'm available. <laughs> well, consider this an advertisement for that. <laughs> um. So uh, at some point you started playing tournaments, but is that right from the book? That that only sort of happened. Um, you you'd play you know intra club tournaments, but but in the fifties you started coming to the national singles and sort of trying to get to the next level. Is that is that how that's happened? Yeah, yeah. And my 50, like my father, but without actually consciously making the connection or really being aware of how much he tried to do that, I sort of it was in the back of my head because he mentioned it, but I wasn't. But I had the same idea of like, well, 50s, you know, the perfect time to start, you know, the second half of your life. And um, everyone else is just as old as you are. And, um, you know, like it's a great chance to get in shape and play more and improve all the many, many flaws in my game. Um, and, you know, I yeah. So it, it turns out like uh, Will Carlin, who I play with some, although he's been out of the game a little bit recently with uh, a knee replacement. Um, but we were at, at, at like maybe the first or second nationals I went to, he done, he got to the semis and lost. And I got to the, I think semis of the constellations and lost. And, uh, he came over in the locker room afterward and said, you know, we're pretty good players in our neighborhood, but there are a lot of neighborhoods out there. And I thought that was a pretty wise thing to say, because you realize there's all these people who are really pretty good and they're out there. And I sort of, I had a slightly opti overly optimistic view of like forgetting and this is a, something that came back to me this year also in, the, in our last fall in the nationals after COVID the first nationals when there hadn't been one for a right. year and a half and I really trained for it and I and I felt like I am I am ready I am this watch out world I felt like I've been working out I was really fit I've been playing a lot I've been taking lessons and I got I was terrible I got killed and I was like I realized afterward you know you, maybe you're not the only one who's been training for the nationals. Like I was like, it was kind of this like wake up moment. Like, you know, you're not, 
you're not the only person in the world, you know, who has ideas about self-improvement and wants to win. Uh, so that was sort of a funny reminder because I think in the, in the first match, which I, was a good match with a, a, an English player who's really a lovely game, but it was like pretty even. And then I think at a certain point, just the fact that he was resisting me and not just rolling over, like, and recognizing all the work I'd done, I kind of mentally caved. I was like, what, what the hell, dude? I've been, you know, I've been biking. <laughs> I've been skipping some goddamn rope, you know, like, and somehow he wasn't impressed by the, all, the, all the hard work I've been doing and he was just hitting, you know, nice rails and cross courts and I sort of just crumbled. So uh, I did better this year at the Nationals. I, I got to the, I came in sixth, which is, you know, not, not terrible for 59 because it's year the last year. And I'm just announcing now in the sixties, you know, everyone better like, <laughs> Really get ready because I'm coming. No, you want you, they're going to give up. You're going to show up, and they're no, going to. I, I expect, and when I sign up, that everyone's just going to drop out. Yeah, exactly. So well, there's no hope. Yeah, that I mean that that's amazing, and and to get get into the top ten and and to finish six of the national singles, that's I mean that's fantastic, right? Like your dad would have been so pleased for you. I think so. Yeah, like you think he was. He kept kind of like he was very curious. He came down and watched me play will actually in the nationals a few years ago and yeah yeah uh, and, it, and it was hard for him to get out of the house but he was he was pleased to be there and watch and i think he now that he couldn't that at that point he couldn't play anymore himself and i think he you know took more pleasure in my game than he might have earlier right. um right in a way because there wasn't the the um the sense of rivalrousness or striving was out of it and um so he could just you know, appreciate it and root me on. And that was nice. It was a nice moment. It was the last time he saw me play. Um, so yeah, I think he would be, I think he would be pleased um, because he did start me off on that, you know, road many years ago, 50, more than 50 years ago. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm hoping that our kids will still play squash too and yep. keep it going. So you um, uh, write about uh, doing a lot of work during the pandemic, especially when the courts were closed and you were ghosting. Were you ghosting in a, in a park or something? Where were you? Where were you doing? Yeah, that? I was ghosting on a local uh, soccer field, and uh, I got really good at ghosting on a tiny patch of soccer field. And I felt like I am probably the world's best fifty-plus soccer field ghoster, uh, which. <laughs> I dare you fight me on this. Like, but I am, I was good. And then I realized like actually ghosting on artificial turf is, I mean, it keeps you in shape. I was in good shape, but it, it didn't seem hugely applicable to the squash court. I got back on the squash court and it was like, I was just as bad as ever, but it kept me in shape. So it was like, I had, but I had a, this like, kind of like this idea, this sort of like Rocky three slash field of dreams idea that like punching meat or doing something weird was going to like this CrossFit thing was going to really elevate me, you know, this, ar this arcane and, and unscientific approach was going to somehow set people, it, it, you know, not so much, um, probably ghosting on a squash court would be good. And also yep. like playing matches on a squash court with someone right. who actually could improve my strokes, all those things. Yeah, yeah, probably better. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, during the pandemic, that was a lot of people were doing that, improvising, and you know, hitting balls against walls outside, yes. and just trying to figure figure out anything. Yeah, whatever you could do. Yeah, it was it was you know, and there wasn't yeah for there, the courts were pretty much empty. So, um, 
Yeah. Uh, so and it and it got kind of like, you know, it was it was kind of weirdly fun, also because the only thing you're doing is just trying to like do one more set of ghosts than you did last time, and you're not competing with anyone else. So it's it was kind of it was kind of weirdly enjoyable actually. I started doing it uh, when I started in my early fifties, trying to get better and, and play tournaments. Um, so I just put a originally an iPad and now an iPod, you know, on a tripod behind the court and, um, it catches things pretty well. And you can see, you know, but what you thought you were doing is not what you're actually doing. And, and that you're, you know, you think like, oh, I have this beautiful, um, you know, Peter nickel, like left-handed swing. In fact, uh, it's not that at all. And you're not, I'm not turning my shoulders and I'm not, you know, pronating my forearm and I'm, not, I'm basically doing nothing. I'm like waving at it like someone trying to shoo off a gnat. Um, so that is disturbing the, and it gives you things to work on. Um, and the problem is, oh, the difficulty is always like the gap between knowing something about yourself in any sphere and, and fixing it is, is much bigger than the gap between not being aware of something and being aware of something. Um, Cause I'm still working on the same things that I was working on, you know, six or seven years ago when I started taping. Um, I do feel like I've, you know, I feel like the, it's a funny thing. I do feel like my basic squash has gotten better actually. Like my movement's a little better, all that ghosting on the soccer field. Uh, and I am actually turning my shoulders better and my swing's a little shorter and cleaner. Um, but at the same time, I'm slower and crankier. So <laughs> it's probably all evens out. Uh, and obviously, you know, you kind of think because the thing, the weird thing about playing the nationals or playing age groups is you're being carried along downstream with the same group of guys. Yeah. So you can think I'm getting, I'm better than so-so now I'd be, you know, or like I'm, and then you realize like, but meanwhile, you're getting further and further from the 21 year old that you were. Um, so there's a slightly illusory sense that you're getting better overall when in fact, you're just disimproving at a slightly slower, slower rate. rate, which is the goal is like to stave yeah. it off. And, and it's a rear guard action against time. Yeah. You, when you and I played, you recorded it uh, and we were just, you know, having a hit, you know, playing for fun. So do you, do you record uh, a lot of your, you know, practice matches as well as, uh, you know, all the Yeah, I do. I, I, I mostly do record it and I, I don't, I don't watch them all. I watch them if I've either played like worse for reasons I don't understand than usual or like I, or something, or like the person has beaten me with in a way that I don't get, or I'm puzzled about something like, why, why did I lose that game? Or what were they doing up front that I didn't quite catch on to, or, yep. you know, why wasn't I seeing that boast that they were hitting, whatever it is, or, and then if I play in the rare circumstances where I play better than I expect, I'm like, let's watch that. And, and like, let's visualize that and have more of that. And that, you know, once a year, I have that rare feeling of like, I would like to, uh, you know, replicate that over and over. Right. Yeah. Uh, but and the weird thing is like, I, I kind of find myself like in rooting for myself, you know, like, oh, come on, like, and it's already over, but I still think like I could win this. And I'm like, no, you can't actually win it because you lost, but you're still thinking like, oh, come on, I could just hit the, you know, uh, I, I sometimes get, yeah, kind of like emotionally in, engaged in it. Uh, and then there's also the chagrinning, uh, 
sometimes you see like you, you ask for a let and you're like, ah, well, that wasn't a let. I shouldn't have even bothered. But then that's useful actually, because it's helpful next time. It's like, okay, you have to go around the guy and go get the ball, you know? So that it actually is, is good for that. Cause like, and cause I, I, I am, I think I'm like, I, I've stopped throwing my rackets, which I used to do. And I stopped cursing, which I also used to do. I used, there's a lot of God damn it's. Um, so don't worry about that. I hope you can look it out if, if this is a family podcast, Jim. Um, but, because uh, uh, my dad was a pretty bad sport. Actually, that was the funny thing about him. He was very fair-minded and very logical and very um, kind of the person, had a sort of judicial temperament off the court. Uh, but on the court, he, he all his sort of demons would come out. He was terrible about lets. He was like, when I, when, when I was younger, he would come back from like league matches complaining about so-and-so and like, you know, like, oh, it was awful. And then, and then later on, you get this in a sort of Rashomon-like way you'd hear from so-and-so who you met who turned out to be perfectly nice and who, when you played him, was perfectly nice. And then they were like, oh, your dad, I couldn't take it. And, and then, you know, and then for, or from, from observers saying, you know, your dad was kind of, and it was, it's kind of a weird thing because it's like, it's your dad. You want to, you know, venerate him. And then I realized like, he's a shitty sport. That's just no other word for it. And, uh, so I've tried not to be that. And of course, not always succeeded and often probably was a shitty sport, but I, I do feel like actually weirdly taping myself and seeing myself with my kind of like uh, gargoyle face. Like when I, when things were going wrong, I was like, that's no fun. Who wants to play that guy? And I actually, so it's been help more helpful in a weird way in terms of like temperament and kind of equanimity than in actually, you know, improving my backhand volley. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's it, it, less about the tactics and strokes. It's more about you seeing yourself because, you know, from afar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, and I also put the match that you and I played, Jim, is up on the dark web too now. I, 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 that. <laughs> it's crazy how, how viral that's gone. Uh, well, because it, it, it was the game ball I had in one of the games. And, and then I, and then, you know, a little bit like your match, I was like, hey, this guy's not giving up like this is insane and and I, I don't think i want another point um do you have a uh a sort of a massive backlog of, of videos and cataloging them and it's like this huge mess of 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 data right i mean you know you have you have hundreds of matches now i do need an ai of some kind to go through it all and yes i do i have hundreds of poorly filmed uh poorly played matches that i if there's some research team out there that wants to uh, somehow apply data science to this for some unknown purpose, they're welcome to the totally shapeless archive that is there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've erased a certain number of them. Uh, and then someone thankfully stole my iPad at a certain point. So that's all gone. Uh, so, but there's still, yeah, there's still way too much on my phone that, um, mm kind of just sits there because it's, you know, sort of the match you lost 3-1 four years ago, maybe not of historical interest. Uh, so. <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's neat to think about that, that, that the technology, because, you know, sort of 20, 30 years ago, you, you couldn't really do any of that. And, and uh, are you was, using an iPod? Yeah, iPod, it's like, the, the thing I find, like, I play with people who are intelligent people, you know, like, uh, who've been to college and often graduate school, and they're always like, hey, can you send me the link 
you know, to the match. I would like to see it. I'm like thinking like there's a $4 tripod that you can buy on Amazon where you can take your own phone, which you have with you and do the same thing. And the only person who does it is Chip Roby he now does it like bringing Chip back in. Um, like he, he also tapes, but I'm like, it's like, it's literally the easiest thing in the world to do. And it actually is helpful. Um, except you have to watch yourself, which can be discomforting, but, uh, one and all you can do it. It's easy and it's kind of helpful. And it's probably the, it's probably the easiest thing to do for your squash game is just watch yourself and see what you're actually doing. Right. Right. One of, one of the things that you've also done, um, is you've kind of gone out consciously to get mentors. Um, so some of the mentors have been other left-handers like, uh, Amir Shabana and, and Peter Nickel, uh, you know, watching their matches. And, and, uh, I think you even had a lesson with Peter, um, is that uh, helpful for you as a left-hander, having you know watching a couple a couple of the greatest left-handers in history, um, and thinking about their game? Um, how how has that helped? Sort of you know watching uh, some of the great players. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely a, a PSA squash TV junkie, and and spend like way too much of my time like watching you know it and hoping by osmosis that it will just get in there and, you know, the movement patterns and the strokes will uh, take effect somehow, which doesn't seem to be the case, but I love watching it. With Shabana, like I just, he's a beautiful game to watch. And it also felt like, it feels like to me, the, his artistry feels like vastly out of reach. Um, but I liked, I, I like the fact that he has sort of an open stance because I have a, his open stance seems like it's designed to, on purpose and mine is, you know, a historical accident that I can't, just can't fix, but it gives me comfort. It's like, well, if Shabana can hit it with an open, then, you know, like I too could, and I can't, um, I need to actually close my front shoulder, but he didn't. Um, so it, it, it makes me feel like, well, you know, like there's some artistic license that I can pursued there with the open forehand. Um, and I, it's just a pleasure to watch him because he's thinking, he's like, you can see his plan. Like it's it's very clear and visible. And then you, you see his plan and then you don't see the silky shot. He invisibly hits the drop. So it's a mixture of a very um, transparent agenda, which is I'm gonna do these three things to Nick Matthew and try to blunt the four things that Nick Matthew is trying to do to me. And then suddenly he hits a little post or a little invisible drop. And you're like, I don't know how you did that because I didn't see it. And Nick Matthew didn't see it. And Nick Matthew was much closer than I am here you know, in New York. Um, so there's that. And then with Peter Nickel, who I had a lesson, my wife gave me a lesson with him five or six years ago, which was awesome. And I've recently started taking like weekly lessons with Peter uh, and who I love as a person and a, a mentor. And I love his approach to like the game. He's, he's a really, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do a, an unprompted Peter Nickel commercial here because he was, he's opened a new center, uh, Nickel Squash on 42nd street between 9th and 10th avenues, um, in New York. And it's a, it's not a, not a squash hotbed. Um, exactly. It's right near a UPS store and, uh, 38 people who have jugs of wine at their lips, um, after they've just gotten off the uh, Lincoln Tunnel. So it's not really what you think of as a squash happen, but it's a great facility. Everyone there is super cheerful and friendly. 
And Peter is that rare combination of someone who is extremely good, obviously number one in the world for many years at the game, but also is excited to and is a terrific coach. Um, often those two don't go together because people who are really good can't explain why they are good or didn't don't understand it. But Peter has a very methodical mind and he's very intuitive and he also will search around. You can actually see him like uh, in an almost magpie-like way, cocking his head, trying to think, how can I convey to Tad what he's doing wrong? And trying two or three different ways and then finally like alighting on the, the magical phrase or almost physical motion that will show me exactly why my what I'm doing is totally a mess. Um, and I really feel like my game has improved uh, thanks to him. Um, and like, and also Richard, right? I mean, Richard and Richard Chin. Yes. Richard is, Richard is on my other shoulder telling me how terrible I am at all times. You know, like there's the Peter Nicholas, like, you know, you're getting, you're getting better. You're a stronger player. And Richard is like, no, you're not. You suck. Uh, so that's between them. You know, it's, it's a kind of, they keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, no, I love Richard. Uh, he, he has a heart of gold, uh, beneath a, a tongue of iron where he's usually saying pretty negative things about my game, which are totally fair and deserved and a reminder that, you know, yes, do not hit a trickle boast when the guy is right behind you up front. Right. That was right. probably my main lessons from Richard in life and, uh, haven't fully learned it. Uh, yeah. so, but I think one of the great things about Richard is watching, you know, he's a few years younger than I am. Um, and he won the fifties at the nationals this year. Um, and his game has, he's changed his game as he has slowed down. We're used to just, his game used to be, I will get to every ball yes. and hit a cross court lob that will die and agonize you. Um, and that was it. That was his game. I mean, that was 90% yep. of his game. Um, now he, he can't do that against everyone anymore because he can't quite get to every ball. And so he's shooting more and he's, he's thinking, he's thinking, he's using his brain, which is a big squash brain. And he's um, deciding like, I can, I can only shoot when I can cover, you know, like in the old days he could shoot. If you occasionally shot, I can cover it because I can get to anything. Now it's like, I have to shoot, you know, I'll hit the long drop because then I'm moving up and the guy has to go further to get it. And by the time he's gotten it, I can cover it. So he's sort of thinking about it and it's a pleasure to watch him kind of adjust his game and in the way that everyone does. Peter Nichols shoots a lot more than he used to. Peter Nichols never shot. Jonathan Power shot and Peter Nichols would go get the ball. And he was a golden retriever. Now, like, you, like he's got great racket skills, which he kind of weirdly underused, I think, for years. Um, he was just like, he was sort of in, stuck in the mode of like, I'm a retriever, I will wear you down. I will extinguish your will to live, but I'm not gonna shoot. Right. Um, yep. and he has great racket skills. Like you watch him and you're just like, wow. Like I, you know, I admire it's just so much. It's so it's fun to see someone who's great at something. Who's like two feet away from you doing that great thing. Yeah. So that's, that's almost worth it just to be for that. Well, and you, 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 uh, in the book, you, you have, uh, two, two analogies. Well, one of them is the the grand unified theory of squash. And I wasn't sure exactly what that theory is. Do, do you recall what your theory is? And it, it kind of bled into talking about the hourglass theory, which I very much relate to where, where, you know, you're playing with Anders Volstead and, and, you know, Anders is like, you know, clearly an amazing player in his twenties. Uh, but then, you know, you guys sort of getting pretty even before you get through the hourglass and, and he's gonna... Yeah, the hourglass theory. Well, it was so Anders was number eighteen in the world. Um, you know, 
lovely guy, beautiful player, amazing stroke. I would just like, my jaw would kind of sometimes just like drop when I was watching him warm the ball up because he was hitting these rails that were perfect. Like they were like one floorboard away from the side and they were dying every single one. It was like over and over and over again. And I'm like, if I do that once, it's lucky. And he was just doing it like as a matter of course, just to warm the ball up. And the ball, when he warmed it up, got like 10 degrees hotter than when I warmed it up. He was just like cracking the goddamn ball. And so I was sort of thinking like at a certain point, I was like, because we started playing, you know, and he was better than I was, but I would win sometimes. And I was like mystified by this a little bit because I was thinking like, yeah, when we were in our 20s, he would have beaten me in four minutes. And I was thinking, so I was thinking, and I was sort of thinking the hourglass idea was like, well, I'm, I've retained enough of my ability to kind of scurry around and get the ball that, you know, on a day when he's not moving well and I am moving well, I can give him some trouble just because by hitting my kind of unorthodox lefty boats and, you know, weird, like stupid shots that he's like, that's ridiculous. No one should do that. Um, and I was thinking that there is this point where in the 50s where people kind of drained together at the center of the hourglass where you know the people who were had other qualities in their squash game that weren't so important in their 20s suddenly maybe those can kind of give you a somewhat levelish playing field i mean andrews is still definitely better than i was but sometimes on a certain day you know if he was off and i was on i could beat him and uh then i was thinking but in this 70 the point of the the bat the, the part of the hourglass to come is that, you know, in the 70s when neither of us can move, his shots are still going to be way better than mine, and that would be the end of it. Then there's this other thing that I didn't include in the equation, which it turns out, like, Anders isn't playing squash anymore because his knees gave out. So there's that part of it, too. There's that, you know, which is the inevitable, like, you know, want-want of life where you're like, everything else can go well, and then you can't move for one reason or another, and it makes it hard to play squash. Yeah, and we we the winnowing away of, of the number of people playing and, and it, 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 it you know, there's just a, an attritional fact about squash that, you know, it is a lifetime sport, but you know, you're just so happy at our age to be able to play. And, you know, as you go along, fewer and fewer people are just simply able to actually get out there. And, and, uh, I mean, your dad did pretty well to get into his, you know, into his eighties, um, you know, playing regularly and, and, uh, um, you know, there's just, the, the, there's sort of the, that inevitable decline that, that we all face and, and you kind of hope you, you, you're escaping. Um, yeah, I, I recently had a, my, my knee's been sore, my left knee's been sore off and on for a while. And I went to see my orthopedist last December and, uh, he showed me the x-rays of my two knees and the right knee has a nice fine layer of cartilage that, you know looks sort of plummy and solid. And the left one, it looks like a piece of dental floss. And he's like, well, there's your problem. And I was like, yeah, there is my problem. And I was really depressed because I was looking at it. And he's like, there's not much we can do about it. We don't, we can't grow artificial cartilage. And I was like, well, what about a cortisone shot that shot that worked before? And he's like, oh, it, it's, you know, at most defies you six months and it usually doesn't work. And I was like, six months, I will take, that's great. <laughs> like, no, seriously, I was like, he's like six months. I was like, six months? Six more months of playing squash. Yep, yep. Give me the shot, and I. It's kind of how I feel. It's like, 
you know, well, you can have six more months of play squash, but you're probably your right arm will wither and fall off if I give you the shot. Well, okay. All right. You know, I don't really use my right arm that much. It's that's my feeling. Like I will do anything to like buy six more months, you know, of squash. The the uh when I had problems, I went to the orthopedics and the guy he's like it's like, well, you just have to stop playing squash. And I was like, um, well, no, like we have to yeah. figure out a way around this because like, I don't want to give it up. Um, I don't want to give it up at age 90, but you know, I definitely don't want to get it up now. And, and, uh, um, that's right. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to stay out there as long as we can. Yeah. Because the end game is there's no game. So why not save it off? You know, like let's, all right. You know, like that time will come and it'll come sooner than I want, but hopefully later than my orthopedist thinks. Outside the Glass would like to thank our producer, Grant Irving, and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast, shared their enthusiasm for it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and more importantly, have spread the word by talking about Outside the Glass with their squash friends. And may all your nicks roll.